This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett, titled, From Relationship to Aloneness, recorded November 20th, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'd like to talk a little bit about our relationship to our spiritual work. Our intention. What is it about? What do we want? What is our posture in relation to doing this work? It's extremely important that we know why we're doing this. We need to know if it's out of fear. We need to know that. If it's out of love, it's wonderful. Look deeper. Very important to know why. It could be out of anger. We could be angry with God for things that have happened. (laughs) I can relate to that. (laughs) Be honest. It's so important that we be honest with ourself, not with somebody else. It's honesty with yourself. Now, if you find that you're motivated by fear or anger, that doesn't make you less of a spiritual person. The fact that you found what it is that's motivating you makes all the difference in the world. Because as we become aware of our anger or our fear, we begin to realize that it's not what we think it is. As we do our spiritual practices, if we come into this realization of what we are being motivated by and we see that it is fear, Then we go into that fear. We don't run from it or make stories about it, but we go into that fear. We find miraculously that it's not what we thought it was. But we have to be willing to be with it. And our problem often is we don't want to know. We go there, it's ugly. We want spiritual stuff. So we go away. But the fact is that That fear is spiritual. We have stories about everything. And most of them are just wrong. But we can't know that unless we start examining. And the best place to start is looking at our motivation, our intention. So have you ever had a bad relationship? Just a horrible relationship in which you could never relate to this person, but you just really wanted them to love you. Or you wanted something from them. And that's usually why we have bad relationships. If we have a relationship with anything in our life, and it's a bad relationship, there's a reason for that. We want it to be some way. We have some story about what it should be. And then we start trying to make that happen. In the meantime, we miss our friend. We don't even relate to them at all. We relate to our images of our friend. 
If we want love from someone, we will never have love. Never. We will only have love if we give love. That's what it's all about. You can't give love and demand that what you are loving be different than it is. So on the spiritual path, then, if we start to recognize this in our intention, we begin to realize that uh, this is true of everything. Everything. So whenever we're in a relationship, true fulfillment lies in the fulfillment of love. That's really all it is. It's just love. Any expectations? Take it away from that. So you can probably see that relationship is what our spiritual practice is. That's what our spiritual path is all about. It's relationship. It's relationship with this world with what we think we are. And the truth is that if we demand something from the world, if we demand something from ourself, then we're moving away from the truth. And when I say that, I mean that. The truth is love. And, you know, people were always splitting this off. We go, well, there's truth and there's love. And, and, and it's good to talk about it that way sometimes. But the fact is, there is no distinction between them. They are the same thing. So when we're in a relationship, we we want to know our true lover. We don't want some image of our lover. That's not going to serve us, nor them. We want to find our true lover. And this is really a puzzle for us because... We have our likes and we have our dislikes. We know what we want in a relationship, but you see, that's not a love relationship. And really, you know, there's no usefulness in anything but a love relationship. Why would we go there? So this, this, um, this process of relationship then is a great deal of it is about finding your lover. You think you've found your lover. You get together with her or him. But now, and this is, this is how a relationship is a spiritual path, you know, you, you, first of all, you start expressing your love to them. But then you find that you're expressing your love to your image. You realize, oh, I want them to be different. So who are they really? Who is this person? And so we look deeper. And the more we look, the more we realize that what we are looking at continues to be an image. It keeps changing. You know, you've all had the experience with photographs of somebody that you care about. Um, you have a stack of them. You start going through them and looking at them. Every single picture is different. The mind will tell you that they're the same. Oh yeah, that's so-and-so. But if you look closely at each picture, 
They are vastly different. Vastly different. And not only are they different, but the way you look at it is different. The way you feel about it is different. Each picture paints a new picture. So knowing an image of someone is very much like knowing a veil. A veil of that person. We see the veil. And then we go, oh, I'm seeing a veil. Oh. And then in that moment, we'll, we'll, we'll feel it. We'll, we'll go, oh, there's something precious here. We'll feel it. But then we'll see something else. We'll go, yes, that's it. But you see, that's just another veil. It's very funny how this works. We get lost in their clothing. We go, I love this person the way they are. That's their clothing. That's not them. You know, if we think she has like a sexy body, clothing, it's all clothing. That's not her. If we settle for an image, it's very similar to the title of that book, The Man That Mistook His Wife for a Hat. <laughs> Why settle for an image when you can have the real thing? We can have the real thing. It's here. It's already here. <laughs> Tom uh, McFarlane shared with me one of his favorite quotes from Simone Weil. It resonates this perfectly. Love needs reality. What is more terrible than the discovery that through a bodily appearance we have been loving an imaginary being? It is much more terrible than death, for death does not prevent the beloved from having lived. That is the punishment for having fed love on imagination. For myself, these words bear out my experience precisely. This is what I went through during this whole process of, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with my past, <laughs> 12 years in which every two years, a very dear loved one died. And it was always a surprise. It always showed me something which I didn't want to see. But it made me pay attention to the fact that nothing was what I thought it was. I really could see that because every time someone died that I cared about, a center part of my life, a central part of my life, suddenly there was a huge hole in my life that I couldn't fill in. I, I could try to fill it in, but it was like a, it was like a, a black hole. It, everything was just kind of going into it. I couldn't, I couldn't um, reconcile the loss. And so I found myself here at the center 
And Joel showed me some ways to work with that. Um, so when our loved one perishes in an accident or an illness, what we have left is this emptiness. We try to fill it with images, and that's what we've been doing all along. The images. We think we love someone, and we think we know what it is about them that we love, and we hold this image. But that's, that's not her. That's not him. That's not who we think it is. We need to go deeper. The emptiness is left when all of our images retreat. And the more we fill in that space of emptiness with more images, the more they're going to retreat. And eventually, hopefully, we're going to see that's what's happening that they are not the reality. There is something much greater there. And so we hold our, our beloved, and we love them, and we look into her eyes or his eyes. That's not them. They are so much bigger than what you think you are seeing. And that's what that feeling you have is, that love. That love is drawn into that. You know that she's not your images. Deep down inside, you know. And that's really what the path is about, is to know that completely. When we know that completely, we stop believing the images. You know, and, and when the images retreat, you know, that's what retreat is about. When we go on retreat, you know, and that's, you know, I'd, I'd have these horrible things happen, and then I find myself on a retreat with Joel and all these other practitioners, and it was sort of like this little cocoon where we could go and sort of sink into this moment. All of the images retreat in a retreat. That's what it's about. So we sit there on retreat, allowing the images to go and staying there, resting in what is left, which is, you know, our heart, our loving heart. Normally we just find something else to occupy our mind, you know. But in death, when you've lost someone, good luck. You can't do it. You're constantly going back to this, and then the images start. You got stories, images, stories. They just keep coming. I had a powerful experience in 1996 after this huge mudslide came down and killed my my uh, girlfriend at the time and three other dear friends. And I was walking up the road where the slide had happened, and. I was thinking about her. I was just, the thoughts were just going crazy. I was like thinking about her and what we've been doing. And suddenly I was standing at the place where her body was pulled out of the mud. And it was just this like dip in the mud. 
And these thoughts were still racing, and I and suddenly it came into focus that I was looking at was this hole where she had been plucked from the mud. Her body had been removed. And suddenly it occurred to me that in the moment that she died, she had already been dead for 10,000 years. In that moment, she was already dead. In that moment, I realized that the one that was with her in all of those images, all of those stories of how we were going here and doing this, where is he? Where is that one? And for a moment there, I saw eternity. It was, it was falling into eternity. I could see that in that moment. It was so clear. And then the images started again. And then I continued to walk up the hill looking at these images. Going, oh, I really miss her. And you know, It's such an interesting thing because in the end, the images are just distracting you from her. She is here now. This is all. This is not what the mind tells us. The mind has all kinds of ways of, of understanding the world. But when we begin to realize that these are all just the clothing, these are all clothing, images, that's all they can ever be. We can see that if we actually stop and look. And that's, again, what the path does for us. We do our little meditations. We cultivate a mind which is capable of actually relaxing and actually noticing what is here now, feeling what is here now, without running away. So if we feel bitterness or sorrow, we just stay there. We don't try to fill it up with images. And then we begin to recognize that is an image. And that image is shifting and changing constantly. And if we stay with it long enough, suddenly that shifting and changing just gives rise to nothing. It's just the clear space of being, the clear space of awareness. All of these images are dancing in there. There's nothing wrong with the images except for the fact that we think they're real. We don't notice what is actually here. We don't actually experience our own nature because we put clothes on it and we become infatuated with the clothing. And so we realize that when we come into our beloved and she begins to take off her clothes, we find that we start to take off our clothes. Sounds like an erotic tale. <laughs> but that's exactly what it is. It is an erotic tale. But it doesn't stop at our worldly ideas of eroticism. It goes all the way to the core. Because as you take off your clothes, and she takes off her clothes, 
then all you can do is embrace. There's only one, that one, your beloved. There's no separation here, anywhere. When you see that your image of your loved one is just a cheap imitation, you are in that moment falling into her arms. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's very simple. All of this, all of our images, they function wonderfully in the world but they're not the truth. And if we fall in love with an image and we stay there, it's we suffer. That's what it's about, suffering. And the suffering is there to show us that something's not right. And if we stop and don't just keep running from the suffering, we stop and we let the, suf- the suffering draw us in. We become aware of our suffering. We stay with it. And we come right down to the truth. What's here already. So it's funny, you know. Relationship. Relationship is the spiritual path. Takes us to the truth. Any relationship, really. Any loving relationship. Anything that you care about that can draw you to the truth. What we find is that there's nothing to get here. Nothing to get. There's no acquisition required. We already have everything. It's in us, always. Very startling to see. There's no separation here. We form understandings on the spiritual path. I think we get it. I think we understand. It's all about oneness. You know, he said it's just images. But you see, that's just image. Anytime we understand... We're just taking on more stories, more images. We need to be naked. We need to allow our stories to just be what they are, not some reality. Joel's always saying this thing. He says it on every retreat. It's great. He's, he's, he's describing how, how the actors can never actually come down off the screen and be real. And that is so true. It's like, if we take anything in our life to be real, really real, just being silly, it's not that way. But this is our, this is what we are drawn to do unless we allow attention to permeate our experience. So, after my friend was killed in the slide. I came to see Joel one day in a 
dreadful state. And he he gave me a little gift. He said, look, why don't you just... <clears throat> he recognized my reverence for these images that I had of her. And he goes, why don't you just, you know, think some nasty thoughts about her. Be rude to her. And I was kind of, I was actually offended. <laughs> but I went home, and in the midst of my suffering, I, that thought came through, that image of what he had said. And I started doing that. I started thinking, you know, okay. She's a jerk. <laughs> and I began to realize there was a kind of a lightness that came from this. And as I did this more, I mean, I didn't make a print, you know, that, now I don't, you know, every time I think of her, I don't think of her as a jerk. But <laughs> it was a very useful, skillful means because basically I just had to get out of the shell. I was, I was encased in this image of her and me and all of that stuff. And when I began to see these are just images arising in the mind, they have no reality at all. It's over. The images are squashed. They're gone. Now I can think of her and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's not a thing wrong with it. But the attachment drives this image-making process and this sense of self. It makes it so real. You know, it's kind of like we become superstitious. We don't want to say bad things to our images because we think, well, that wouldn't be very nice. But one thing that's required on the path is courage. We have to be courage. We have to have courage to face our demons. And one of our demons is this kind of superstitiousness that we have about our images. We hold them to be very real. We have to somehow get through that. And that's not easy because we hold these things deeply. It's been going on a long time, seemingly. <laughs> so as we look at things in this way, our identity begins to shift, and naturally so. What we thought we were were these images. These images are rising, they're passing away. But we didn't notice that they were passing away so much before. Now we're noticing it more and more that you know, I have an idea. You get up in the morning, there's a sense of me. First, it's just an emotion, kind of a feeling. And then the thought comes in and goes, yep. That's me. <laughs> and then, it, and then the, the emotion and the thought have this relationship through the day. And that's great and everything, except that there's a lot of suffering in that because our identity is tied up in that. We think we are those thoughts. We think we are those emotions. But those things are just arising in us. They aren't us at all. So, these thoughts are happening. But these thoughts are happening to themselves. 
We have a thought, we say. But who's having the thought? Well, a thought is having a thought. The sense of me is a thought, and that thought is having a thought, seemingly. So thoughts are actually having thoughts, and emotions are actually having emotions. I mean, we're feeling something, and then the feeling of the feeling is the feeling. And so this thing is just dancing and playing the way it dances and plays, and it's a rainbow of effect. But it's all just image. It's never you. It's happening in you, but it's not yours. These are not your thoughts. They're not your emotions. They're just happening. And it's wonderful when, when you know, it's such a relief. I'm telling you, when it's not, <laughs> when it's not your stuff, you can really relax. And you can really love. Truly love. What this comes down to is we need to find that aloneness that we are. We need to find the stillness that we are. But as we get lost in our imaginations, we can't. Even the idea of aloneness or stillness is awareness or whatever. Those things, they're good for bringing us to the edge of the cliff but they're not in, a, in and of themselves. They're not real. They're images. So aloneness, then, is what we want to try to, to recognize. That we are aloneness. All of this stuff is arising in this stillness. <clears throat> so this is your nakedness. This aloneness, that nakedness, is devoid of belief. There are no beliefs that you hold. All beliefs are being believed by belief. They're not believed by you. They're thought. <clears throat> thought is having thought. If you hold belief as real, then you're always trying to either disprove them or prove them. But And I think this is probably the biggest thing that, that happened last fall was this, suddenly there was just this stillness, this vastness. And thoughts were this, just the tiniest thing. They weren't mine. They were just sort of happening out here. Not my thoughts. Just thoughts. And that changes everything because now your relationship with thought is, is based on reality. You, you're not trying to take responsibility for every thought that comes up. And that's what we do. And then it's like one thing leads to another. We'll, we'll have a thought and go, yep, I thought that. And now I have to somehow prove that that's how I feel or, or show that, well, I'm, I'm true to my word or whatever. But these thoughts are just happening. So we can't really do that. It creates this, this big confusion. And that's what we're in most of the time on the spiritual path. We, you know, we're trying to be spiritual, you know, and we're taking on the spiritual teachings. But they're just ideas. We need to somehow start to recognize more and more closely in this moment that everything that is arising is happening within you, but not. It's not happening. You're not doing it. 
The problem with aloneness, however, though, is that we are afraid of it in many cases. We don't want to be that stillness because, well, we like stuff. We like doing stuff. We like, you know, going places and having friends. And, and, and it's funny because we think that if we uh, fall into this aloneness that we will not, we will be out of touch with everything. We're going to be, you know, just this big nothing. <laughs> That's not true. We're already, the, we're already what we are. <laughs> And we're doing just fine, except for we're suffering. And the reason we're suffering is because we're believing all these images are real. And they're ours. But they're not ours. They're just happening. It's the flow. It's just flowing. So we just recognize that it's only clothing. And it's just clothing. We take off our clothes. We can let our clothes come back on now. It's okay. Clothes are fine. You get cold without clothes. <laughs> but I did want to say this this one last thing about um, how we constantly are hiding from our aloneness. We 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 um, we're afraid of it, and so we keep manufacturing stories to kind of fill in the that blank space. Because it's so bleak looking to us, but and our stories just keep propagating this thing and keeps it happening, and so it's this gradual process of being willing, kind of like what Joel always uses. An example. I love Joel's examples. I've heard them for so many years. I can't help but think them. Um, but you know, the the little kid that runs out and you know is afraid of the water and runs out and t- puts his toe in and whoo and runs back. I mean then comes back and maybe gets the ankle in and then runs back and then maybe a little more. And after a while, kid's out there swimming in the ocean, he can't get him out. And it's just like that. We have to be willing to have a little courage. We have to be willing to just take the word of the mystics a little bit. But more than that, feel that love that's inside of you. Now, a lot of it is we put a lot of our our love gets frittered away in little likes and dislikes. We're, we're always running from things. We don't like that. We want to feel better. We go over here. And we kind of fritter away our love. But if we can find something that we really are drawn to and let it draw us in, then it's like the energy is all pulled together. And there we are. We've we have this focus and we're, we can feel love. You know, it's not just, oh, I want to have a new VCR or I want a new, um, whatever. It isn't that. It's we're, we're loving. We're appreciating. And the more we do that, the more we allow that love to kind of come in together and not be so, you know, short circuited off in all different directions. Then we have the motivation to look because it's that, it's that love, it's that love of truth. Truth and love are the same thing. It's love of truth that moves us towards the truth. It is that. So, anyway, that's probably enough. Any questions about any of this stuff?
Mega. Um, I've heard several teachings that you've given, and some to me personally. I was wondering if you could kind of go over a little more concrete examples of how to feel that nakedness and and uh, to use your words, embrace it. Yes. Well, to feel that nakedness. All we really need to do is just right where we're sitting, just close your eyes for a moment and feel what is there. Notice the mind wants to give you stories about everything. That's okay. The nakedness is there. That it's 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 a funny thing. Awareness is the most miraculous, the most incomprehensible thing that we will ever find. It is awesome. The mind doesn't even have a clue what to do with it, so it just gets right over it. It just doesn't even go there. It doesn't know how. The mind is, you know, the mind is suffers from a real big problem, and that is that it's only good for dividing things up. It's really all it's good for. It's wonderful at that, and and you know, we can do all kinds of really amazing things with the mind. But the mind cannot know the truth. So what happens is, this nakedness, it's here now. What we need to do is relax a little bit. Sometime when we're not spinning too much, relax a little bit and just, you know, ask yourself, what is it that knows? What is here? What is it that's here that knows, that's having this experience. Immediately the mind has a story about that, you see, and if you go to the story, you're going to miss it. And this is what we do. This is, we're habituated to do this. But if you recognize what it is that's actually there, and if you have enough love and willingness to go there, then it, it's like it, you just, you just stay with whatever imaging or whatever, and after a while, it's like it parts, and then you're with the, what's beneath it, which is just sort of energy. You see, it's not interesting stuff to the mind at all. It's just this energy, this shifting and changing. If you stay with that long enough, eventually, and, and many people in this room have had this experience in meditation, suddenly this space just opens up. It's just stillness. Of course, as soon as that happens, we, we're, in, we're having such a rapturous moment, all we can think is we want it. That's an image. We're not having that thought. That thought is having that thought. And if we can see that thought just having itself, we remain that stillness, that nakedness. That's what we are. And so, it's amazing. It's amazing. Does that answer your question? There's probably other ways we could talk about that. Yes? I have a brief story. Oh, yes. <clears throat> it must have been at least six years ago that you handed me a set of tapes by Gumbaji called Who Are You? 
I did? At least six years ago. <laughs> yeah, you said, Mary's song, I bought this and I listened to it, and I think you might like it. So I took it and I listened to it, and in fact, it was quite good. Two tapes, um, four sides, about 30 minutes each. Gangaji is speaking directly to you on the question, who are you? So I listened to it, and I, it was good, and I, I talked to Carla, and I said, these tapes are good, and she said, can I borrow them? And I said, of course. So she took the two tapes, and then um, some time went by, and I was here at the center, and she came in and handed me a brand new copy, in the box, shrink-wrapped, from Paralandra, the two tapes. And she said, I'm sorry, I lost one of the tapes, so I bought you a new set, and I said, you didn't need to do that, but... Okay, thank you. So then I, I felt kind of miserly about the, the new tapes, and I, I put them on the bookshelf, and I thought, I'll save these for a gift for someone. When I know someone needs a gift, I'll give it to them. So years went by, and I never found a person to give the tapes to. Um, so last May, I thought, I really need something to listen to, and I thought, those tapes, I'll give those to myself. So I opened the tapes for the second time, and um, I began to listen. This was in May, let's say. From May until now, I've continued to listen to the same four sides over and over and over. Every night as I go to sleep, I listen to Gangaji saying, Who are you? You are nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I feel as though I'm, I'm hearing this on a much deeper level than ever before, and there's something so fascinating um, each time I hear it, there's another thing, there's something else I'm hearing, and my mind is almost startled by it. Um, and yet, the question, who are you, always seems askew to me, as though there are a bunch of someones, and which one are you? Yes, that's, a, that's it, that is the question. Which one are you? <laughs> Shouldn't it be, who do you think you are? Actually, see... <laughs> That's a good question, too. Who do you think you are? But no, which one are you? That, if you ask the question, which one of these images am I? That's the same as the other question, really, because you're going to end up with, well, let me see, I think I'm this one, but uh, no, I'm this one. But uh, you see, after a while, they're all just images. And then it's like, well, I'm none of these. These are just stories. Mm -hmm. Impossible to do. So if you change it to... Um, what do you think you are, then you're actually evading the the who? I would say that the problem sometimes with spiritual practices, and I, I know I've done this myself for years, and Joel, Joel said, Joel told me that I was Dharma-ridden. <laughs> Dharma-ridden? You heard that term before? He told me that too. Oh, did he? <laughs> Tell everybody that, Joel? <laughs> no, just your specialty. <laughs> so, so basically, though, it's, it's just take the, teach the teachings lightly. Don't get to... Because the teachings, are, they're, just, they're just there to kind of point. Just point. They're just, they're, the main thing is when you ask yourself, "Who am I?" Do it, you know. Don't don't just do it haphazardly and frequently because it'll just become a habit and a story, mm -hmm. and it'll have this kind of mystical quality to it. It's not going to help you. Mm -hmm. Better than that is to find yourself, uh, say, um, 
at the end of a retreat or at the end of a, of, a, of a clear sitting in which you are just very relaxed, it'd be a good time to ask that question. But don't ask it, you know, as a cliche. Allow yourself to go beneath the words and really look. What, what is really here? What is aware? What is, what is it that's, that sees these hands? What is it that's seeing? What is looking out through these eyes as if there were eyes? So, I don't do that. Help for the merry song of the universe. <laughs> that's who I am. Yeah, it's a good one, but look further. <laughs> yes. I was thinking, you know, you asked the question, who am I? And it's like a multiple choice. And the answer would be none of the above. <laughs> and I really appreciate your talk. I thought it was very inspiring and you're very clear. And uh, it's like we think we need to get something, but actually it's, it's getting rid of something. It's coming exactly. into the emptiness, the nakedness. Exactly. And I appreciate Joel's book. He sort of alluded to it. In the book, if you're going to go to God, you have to go naked or you don't go at all. Exactly. And just to allow all of this stuff to arise and pass and to, to realize that our beingness is this, this nothingness or the emptiness. As Ananda Maya says, if you go inward, then there's this sense of this emptiness. Yes. And like the beloved and I are one. There's only one. There's not right. anymore. Everything is part of the one. That's right. It's so dan dancing with the emptiness or yeah. the nothingness. And you know, and we think that this emptiness is some rarefied thing, but actually it's right here. It's right here between thoughts and actually even while thought is happening. It's just it's what's it's what's knowing. It's the knowingness itself. So when we say emptiness it gives, you know, it's got a bad rap, you know. Emptiness it sounds bleak. The mind doesn't know what to do with it, but if we just allow ourselves to feel our experience, we know, we see it, we feel it. We feel the space between things. And then we begin to recognize that the things are just a manifestation of the space. There's no separation anywhere. Yes, Ellen. Um, I like to think of it like surrendering to God. Uh, I'm more of the prayer related, and I think I'm approaching the same thing you're talking about when I'm praying and surrendering to God. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's see. See, this is what love is. And, you know, when we when we allow love, and then we, you know, even though we may not be saying that we're surrendering to God, we're surrendering to love. And God and love and truth, they're all kind of one thing. So, yeah, when we allow ourselves to love, when, when we love, it's like, what's left? What's here? Nothing. You know, you can't be selfish and love. You know, it's like that thing I was talking about with relationship. If you have... If you have a relationship in which you demand something from your beloved, 
That's the same thing as demanding something from God. If you're demanding something from God, you're demanding that God be a certain way, you can never find God. Because God is the way God is. And if you think that you can change the way God is, then that's just a big self wanting things to be the way that self wants things to be. And it's going to miss God. It's going to struggle, struggle, and struggle. But yeah. Do you did you just say or did I imagine you said uh, both? Mind can't find truth. Did you hear me? Mind, mind can't find truth. Yes. Did you say that? Yeah, I'm afraid I did. <laughs> well, do you think uh, meditation can find truth? Well, meditation can't find truth either. Actually, what finds truth? is truth. Truth finds truth. We are truth already. And we use meditation to kind of settle down our spinning thoughts and needs and all that stuff. We use the meditation to allow that to settle down and then we can see what's actually here. And what's actually here is unspeakable. All five of my dictionaries say that uh, meditation and truth are exactly the same thing. Is that true? <laughs> Beats me. <laughs> Actually, you know, all words are deceptive. That's their nature. Because when we say meditation, we think, you know, we have a... We have a group idea of what meditation is, but we could say that meditation is the um, um, essentially being. I mean, when one is awake, then all of life is meditation. There is really nothing but meditation. You see, it kind of blurs the definition. And then it's like, we don't really know what we're talking about. So, yeah, in a sense, that could be true, but I don't know. Beats the heck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking tricky questions. <laughs> You're forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Oh, could it be useful to think of emptiness as the absence of form <clears throat> rather than nothing at all? And we're just accustomed to thinking of something as having form. But form, apparently, I mean, I'm thinking in your language would be the images, they're illusory. And once we get behind the form to the so-called emptiness, we discover what's real. In the end, we see, and that's a useful thing to come to at some point in our, in our uh, spiritual quest. But in the end, all form is emptiness. It's really, there's no separation anywhere. Whatever is arising we begin to see that objects, what we see as objects in the world of form, for, you know, you can, you can set it up so that you're going to be aware of emptiness and form. And that can bring you to some realizations about the nature of both. But, you know, in our, in our mundane life, we just see you know, it's just the world out there, and we see everything's objective. We're 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 seeing through a mind. We're not actually, we're not actually 
feeling what we are. We're, we've objectified everything, and we believe that everything is separate and uh, has a certain meaning. We believe the meanings are solid, and you know, meanings are passing constantly. There are no, there are no solid meanings anywhere, and that's their beauty. Any other questions? Yes. I uh, ran across something last week that relates to this. I was—I uh, don't know how many other people here might have been. Uh, David Lynch's lecture. I don't know if anybody else was here. He was a—he's a Hollywood director, and he was here. Uh, he's on the. I won't go into the reasons that he's here and so on. But he's—he's he's a meditator. He doesn't claim to be awakened, but he's—he's practiced TM for a long, long time. And he was talking about um, our our guys as as individual persons, and, and uh, you know, he's all very clued into the illusory character of Hollywood and the filmmaking and all that. Anyway, but he called it the uh, suffocating rubber clown suit. <laughs> <laughs> I found it that absurd image. That works. It's very yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's good. very good. I heard about this. Oh, you mentioned it in class the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe we should... It's 12.30. Maybe we should draw this morning to a close. Peace to you all. Thank you. I just want to say one thing. When Todd came to see me on this retreat, actually his awakening, it's always interesting what happens. He walked in and people tell me about all sorts of experiences they have on retreat. You know, some of them are quite spectacular. But he just had this sort of puzzled look on his face and screwed up. You can't tell anybody about this, can you? I mean, <laughs> words just, they just don't do it. I mean, there's absolutely nothing you can say. Uh, that's all I'm <laughs> so I thought he did a pretty good job today of talking about what he can't possibly talk about. <laughs> Well, thank you.